Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband Josh wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want, we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. They need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry, and then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way, and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church, exactly. knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. I'm not commanding you. But I'm wanting to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This is the text I want to look at in the story that we get caught up in. So Paul is writing to this church all the way in Corinth, and he had obviously visited this church, but in order to, to grasp what actually is happening in this text, we actually have to hear the bigger story, the bigger picture of what is going on in this particular church. So what I'm going to do is just kind of go through the history of the church, I suppose, briefly, up until Corinth, and um, just let you in on what actually is happening and how Paul goes about encouraging the church to give, um, because he has plenty of things he can use at his disposal, but he chooses to use something else, and we'll get to that. So if you have a Bible, um, hopefully you're bringing your Bibles, but if you don't have one, there are some Bibles up here that you can have. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take these uh, Bibles. They're for you. Um, take it as a gift. Go to Acts chapter 1. I want to start with the movement, because we often just read through the Bible, and, and we don't recognize the context, and we don't actually recognize the bigger story, because something happened in Macedonia that Paul has to write to Corinth about, because it was a significant story. 
Okay, so he, Paul wants to bring the church up to speed because he's on his way to Corinth, we'll find out, to pick up some money. Go to Acts chapter 1. I just want to give you a brief history. So uh, Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. If you're new to this Christian thing, we are gathering here on Sunday because we believe that Jesus lived and died in human history and was raised from the dead. Hallelujah! And because of that story, we gather on Sunday morning. So this is right after he's raised from the dead. He's with his disciples for 40 days. Um, and then he says to them in verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So he says, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit, and you're going to be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, and then to the surrounding regions of Jerusalem, and then eventually to the ends of the earth. So let's say that this is a, sto- a, a storyline here, and the story begins all the way in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 1, and then verse 12 says, Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called Mount of Olives. So it begins in Jerusalem. This movement of God, this church, begins in Jerusalem. Um, I have a, a map in case you want to know where Jerusalem is. Do we have a map there, Darren? I'm not talking to myself. Darren is the lyrics. <laughs> okay, so I know it's hard to see from there, but do you see where the arrows are pointing to and going at the bottom kind of corner of Jerusalem? It says, I'm going to point. I don't have a laser pointer. I'm going way back here. But I want you to capture this for a moment because Jerusalem's way down here. Look at where it's at as we go through the rest of the verses. Now, you're going to have to speed through this with me. So go to Acts chapter 8 if you have a Bible. Jerusalem's at the bottom. But then it says this in Acts chapter 8. And I know where I'm going, so you have to move very fast or scroll on your phone very quickly. Because Acts chapter 8 verse 1, it says this. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, but also Judea and Samaria, and then eventually to the ends of the earth. And so finally, after seven chapters in Acts, the gospel begins to spread from Jerusalem to the surrounding regions, Judea and Samaria. Go to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. So we're just going to picture uh, this story, this movement exploding. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. So it spreads to Phoenicia, to Cyprus, and Cyrene. Acts chapter 13, are you with me? It's moving. Are you capturing the story? Acts chapter 13, we're hearing about Paul and Barnabas. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, verse 4, Chapter 13, the two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. Verse 13 of chapter 13, from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia. So now, what starts in Jerusalem, do we have one more verse? Yeah, one more verse. Go to Acts chapter 14, um, verse 1. You like this Bible survey? Is anyone else having fun getting into the Word? Verse 1, at Iconium, you're learning how to pronounce some of these names today. Um, Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. Verse 8, in Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. Verse 21, they preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. So it starts in Jerusalem. Here's the map. Jerusalem's right there. Go to the next map, if you would. Um, so here, the, the message is spreading. So if you go back to the bottom right corner right there, and work your way up, you have Cyprus is the island. Salamis is on that island. Paphos is on the island right next to that green area called Syria. Antioch is up into the coast. It keeps going up um, in, in that direction. So the gospel is, is spreading. Now go to the left where the, there's kind of a red region. That's Pamphylia and Perga. Are you with me? So it starts in Jerusalem, and these guys, apostles and church planners, begin to plant churches. And they're going all the way up the region to the known uh, Roman Empire, and these churches are being planted along the way. We have um, all sorts of churches being planted. Let's go to Acts chapter 16, verse 12. From there we travel to Philippi, 
a Roman colony in the leading city of the district of Macedonia. And we stayed there for several days. Acts 17, verse 1, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. This is where all my education went to. <laughs> Learning how to pronounce these great words. Where there was a Jewish synagogue. Verse, uh, chapter 18, of verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Go to the next slide, please. So here we have the known Roman world. Italy's to the far left. The farthest on, uh, green area on the left, Achaia, is Greece. And at the bottom is Corinth. Corinth is over there. And that top left region, all the way to the top, is Macedonia. All the way to the very top. So what starts way down in the small corner near northern Africa starts in Jerusalem, and the movement begins to spread. And it goes and goes and goes, and churches are being planted, and we get all the way up to Macedonia, eventually it goes to Rome, and Paul is trying to get to Spain, but he never gets there because he dies in Rome. The church is forming, and the movement of God is spreading all over the place, all over the known world. Now, what starts in Jerusalem spreads to the rest of the world, but something begins to happen in Jerusalem. Suffering begins to happen. And so we know three things are going on back in Jerusalem, where the movement started. Number one, there's great persecution. Christians are being beaten up and killed for their faith. The second thing, according to some historical records in 46 AD, there, were, there was a massive food shortage and famine going on. So literally people are starving to death back in Jerusalem. And the third thing is going on is that the Roman Empire is, has heavy taxation, and uh, including the Jewish system and the Roman system of taxes. Some historical or historians say that in Jerusalem, you are taxed 75% of your income. So a movement that starts in Jerusalem spreads to the rest of the world, and what begins to happen is as these church planners and apostles begin to um, plant these churches, they begin to take up a collection known as a collection for the Lord's people. And so you read all over the New Testament, in Galatians, Paul, Paul says when talking to the apostles in Jerusalem, they say to remember the poor. Have you read this verse? Consider the poor. They're talking about the poor in Jerusalem. In Romans, it talks about giving to the collection of the Lord's people. In 1 Corinthians, it talks about the collection of the Lord's people. This is a clever way of saying when the church begins to spread out and churches are being planted all over the world, even churches in Corinth, way over here in Greece, are giving to people they've never seen in their entire lives. They just give. And here's one observation about the church according to the movement that we read in Acts. Number one. Built into the DNA of the church and its movement, there was a simple practice, a revolutionary practice, and it's this. You give. There was a revolutionary practice that was built into the DNA of the church. You give your time, your energy, your resources, and your life. Built into the DNA of the church that started in Jerusalem and spreads all over the world for 2,000 years. We are here because of it. We are called as a church, part of our DNA, to give our time, energy, and resources. We give it to people that we know, that we're in relationship with, and we give it to people that we've never met because that is what the church does. Period. Acts chapter 4 says this. Um, in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, the earliest descriptions of the church... Um, you have a, come on, Darren, you're holding me up, man. Where are you at? It's okay. It's not on this one. He always one. gets the busy ones. He always gets the, 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 um, the PowerPoint with lots of slides. Oh, do you want me to read it? You have to. It's not in here. It's all right. It's all right. Acts chapter 4 says this. Um, when Luke is describing the church and what it looks like, uh, he uses two different snapshots. He does it in Acts 2 and Acts chapter 4. Verse 32, it says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. But they shared everything they had. Now, seriously, I, I read this. And I'm like, my iPad? Really? I share? That is not my own. I mean, this is what Luke is saying, that deep into the DNA of the church, they just, hey, I have, you don't have enough, we're going to share. And then it says, with great power, the apostles continue to testify to the resurrected resurrection of the Lord Jesus and the grace, the God, and God's grace. Uh, was so powerfully at work among them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land and houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. 
and it was distributed to anyone who had need. So built into the DNA of the church is that we give, period. We learn to be generous. We are called to be generous. Now, that is an early picture of the church. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians. So this is where we're going to kind of focus our time, because I, I just wanted you to, to get a glimpse of what actually is happening. Because to say that in a, a world where there's really no real easy forms of transportation, for, for them to collect money and transport that money back to Jerusalem, that is a significant deal. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church because in a previous letter, in a previous communication, the Corinthian church has said they want to give to the collection of the Lord's people. They heard about this collection and they want to give. And now the thing about Corinth is that they're wealthy. They were in a decadent culture. They had, they had plenty of money. They were, they were well off. Um, and, and Paul is on his way to visit Corinth to collect the money. They haven't prepared the collection yet. They haven't given yet. This, this church of some sort. But on his way to Corinth, something happened in Macedonia. And here's what he says. We want you to know, verse 1, about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded. They begged us for the privilege of giving money to the churches in Jerusalem. Here's what happened. Macedonia was poor. I mean, really, really, really poor. And Paul didn't tell them about the fund that was being collected for the people in Jerusalem. Because why would you ask a church that's in the inner city, that's young, that's poor, to give to people halfway around the world that are suffering? Why would you ask those that are suffering to give to those that are also suffering? Paul didn't see that in his mind, so at least that's what we can kind of deduct from what's happening here. But they heard about it and they said, we want in. We're not going to allow the barrier of poverty to hinder our ability to be generous. And so what happens is, Paul, a miracle happens. Paul uses this beautiful language. He says, grace has been given to the church in Macedonia. Their ability to give money is a grace given to them by God. And, and he describes the situation, and he inverts some words, and I think it's absolutely beautiful. He says, in their extreme poverty, um, welled up, Rich generosity. And he inverts those words on purpose because he's wanting to clearly communicate what's happening. Now, here's a couple of observations that I want to just point out because for me as a leader of a church and as a pastor, I think there are so many ways we can motivate the church to give. I'm, we're talking about money not because we're in a deficit. Just so you know, we're not, we're not talking about money here because we're in a deficit. We're talking about it because it's an idol in our lives and it has to do with this discipleship. Paul goes, writes to Corinth because he's basically wanting them to get their act together. He's wanting them to get ready to give their money because he's traveling with some other Macedonians to collect the money and to go to Jerusalem. And if this poor church was able to give beyond their ability, then Corinth better kind of get their act together. But what he doesn't do, what he doesn't do is you shame. You tie wads, get your act together. <laughs> He doesn't use the law. Hey, the tithe is a legal thing. You are required by... He doesn't use law. He doesn't use an argument of reason. He's not, he's not coming to them with, uh, with authority that he is, has as an apostle. He says, I want to tell you the story about God's grace given to this church. I want to tell you a story that is about grace. You know what grace is? Grace is God empowering you to do something you can never do on your own. He, he says, let me tell you a story of God's grace. And then he describes it. And, and he basically says, they exceeded our expectations. Um, he says, we want you to know about God's, uh, the grace God has given the Macedonian church. In the midst of a severe trial, their overflowing joy, their extreme poverty welled up rich generosity. Their extreme poverty welled up 
enriched generosity. What does this mean? It means you can barely have any money at all and be rich. It means you can have barely money, any money at all and be wealthy. You can barely have any money at all and your spirit can be bursting wide and open, liberated in freedom, and you can be generous and rich. You can give and it has nothing to do with the amount. It has everything to do with your heart. And it also means that you can have lots and lots of money and be poor. That you, I think there are some of us in here and our spirits are so bound and wrapped around a number and security and our finances as a place of identity that we are, we are poor in all aspects of our life. But some of us have no money at all and we are bursting through the seams with generosity and wealth. You can have lots of money and be poor. One thing that this passage teaches us is this. Money and generosity are two different things. Money and generosity are two different things. You don't have to have a lot of money to be a person of great generosity. Just because you have lots of money, does that mean when you give you're generous or that when you have lots of money you're rich? No, of course not. In fact, it's been my experience that most of those that give the most don't actually make the most. Most of us that give the most don't actually make the most in here. The question isn't how much you have. The question is, are you aware of how much you have? I think this is the... Stay with me for a second. This is just my observations with this whole thing. I think this is the beginning of a heart of generosity. It is the awareness of how much you have. Are you aware of how much you have? When you wake up in the morning... Is it filled with thanksgiving and gratitude? That you can breathe. That you can get out of bed without help. That you have a car to drive to work. That you have a job. Are you aware that you have friends that you can call when you need to move? That you have friends, period. That you have a community of support. That you know one other person. Are you aware of how much you have? This is the beginning of generosity. It's thanksgiving. It's awareness. I think this is, um, for many of us, the biggest struggle in our lives. Because for many of us, we base our contentment on where we stand with other people. We play the comparison game. We base our status in life, the contentment we have in life, based on those around us. Based on our coworkers, based on our friends and family members, based on those we follow on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We find our contentment in knowing how we measure up with everyone else, and we try to keep up. And when we play that game, it's always what we don't have. When you compare yourself to others, you will always fail because someone will always have something that you don't. And we focus our entire life's energy on accomplishing or acquiring the stuff that we don't have rather than simply recognizing, God, we have enough. And if you're here and you drove here, if you have a refrigerator, if you um, have access to running water, you are in the top 1% of the wealthiest people on the face of this planet. More than 7 billion, around 7 billion people. Top 1%. So if Paul's writing to us, would he be writing that we were the Macedonian church? Of course not. He would say, let me tell you about the grace that was given to that house church in India. For our context. It begins with awareness. And we can focus our energy trying to measure up but a liberated spirituality, a free spirituality, is one that is aware of how much they already have. Are you with me? Macedonians are poor, and they say, we want in. We want to bless people we've never met because the story of our grace is their story continued. This is just what it means to be the church. And Paul says, they gave, uh, I love this line, it really trips me out. He says, um, they basically begged to give. He says, for I testify, they gave as much as they were able. What do you think that means? 
Like, he's walking in knowing that, wow, these guys don't have really anything to give. They gave as much as they were able, but even beyond their ability. He was surprised by how much they put together. What does this tell me? We are capable of extraordinary generosity. You and I are capable of so much more. We are capable of so much more. And the story of the scriptures are the story of ordinary men and women doing extraordinary things beyond their ability. Are you with me? So he says they were able to give more um, beyond his own insight, beyond his own ability. They were capable of extraordinary generosity. Then he continues. He says, I'm not commanding you. (laughs) This is just so funny. But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. It's like you said you're going to give. I'm just letting you know. But then... This becomes the primary uh, lesson for the day, I suppose. It says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Paul connects, he connects our generosity and giving to the type of God we worship. Paul connects how you spend your money, how generous you are, how you give, to what kind of God you worship. He says, he uses the gospel as the platform for motivation. He says, Jesus, who was rich, became poor for your sake, so that you may become rich. What kind of God do you worship? When when the bucket comes around, are you thinking... This is the God that has abounded in grace upon grace, that has given everything he possibly could, including his only son, so that I could enter into a right relationship with him. Or are you saying, this is the God that is holding out, that leaves me wanting, that is scarce, that's meager? What type of God do you worship? If you want to answer that question, just look at your bank accounts. Cricket. <laughs> That's when people walk out. I gotta use the restroom. Um, oh man. I wish I had a funny joke. I don't. <laughs> what kind of God do you worship? This is what Paul gets at. He uses the gospel as the motivating reason to give. Because Paul knows the gospel of grace. He knows and trusts God and His Spirit to do what only the Spirit can do, and that's to grab the hearts of people and motivate them to live in accordance with the Gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we're going to continue through that. I'll just let you settle with that frightening reality. I always challenge people in your community groups, what would it look like for everyone to bring their finances and say, would you guys look through this and say, see where I'm off? (laughs) Tell me where my heart is no longer aligned with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Go ahead. (laughs) Husbands and wives, as you prepare budgets, does your budget reflect the grace that you've received in your marriage? Remember this, verse 6. <laughs> I'm not preaching for a couple weeks because I'm having a son tomorrow morning. So. <laughs> I'm just soaking up my last few minutes on the stage. So, <laughs> Second Corinthians 9, 6. Remember this. this is the, he's just getting more intentional. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever uh, sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Very, hey, you've already decided give based on what you've decided. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, but God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a joyful giver. God loves a hilarious giver. Someone that is just spontaneously laughing because they get the grace of giving. That's what he's talking about. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all you need. Let me try that one more time. 
in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they freely gave their gifts to the poor, and the righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed, and it will enlarge the harvest, the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way. Which way? How many ways? In every way. So you can be generous on every occasion. In other words, God gives you money and stuff and talents and resources so that you can be generous in every way on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, those people back in Jerusalem, but it is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. In other words, when you give... It brings testimony to God. When you give, it brings thanks to God. When you give, it says, um, it says this, it says, and through us, in your generosity, when you're generous, it will result in thanksgiving to God. People will say thanks to God. They will recognize God when people are generous and are meeting the needs of the poor and are doing the things that the gospel tells us to do when the church uses its money the way God intended it to use. Are you with me? I'm a little more with myself than you guys. So, um, so this is what he's instructing the church to do in Corinth, and I want to be intentional. We're talking about a specific incident, a specific church to a specific group of people. But we can, we can take from this some truths that apply universally for all of us. So what do we take away from this specific kind of instruction on giving? Number one, built into our DNA, the church is called to be generous. If you are a follower of Jesus... You are invited into the joyful reality that you are now called to a life of radical generosity. Number two, what do we learn from this? Generosity and money are two different things. It's not how much you have. It's being aware of how much you have. It's not determined. Your gener generosity is not determined on how much you make. Or even how much you give. It's a condition of the heart. It's an awareness of whose it is in the first place. Paul says, he provides the seed. He provides the bread. I always talk to people, um, and they always ask, well, well, Darren, like, do you give before taxes or after? And the question for me is, well, has, how, how has he given it to you? Has he given you the capacity to make money before taxes or after taxes? It doesn't matter. It's about your heart in the situation. If it's about following the law, you're already missing the point. It's about the condition of your heart. How much has he been giving? How much have you received? Let's start there and then work our way backwards. Are you with me? Third point I want to say is how you handle your finances is directly connected to what type of God you worship. How you handle your finances is directly connected to what kind of God or the type of God that you worship. And I don't mean there's a different God. I'm not talking about Jesus. But I am saying many of us our, our worshiping consumerism fueled by narcissism and materialism. That we have been told how much we make or the clothes that we buy or the, the bank account number or the multiple houses will determine our, our, our identity and our level of success, our level of comfort, our level of security. All of those words, we're finding meaning in finances, we're finding meaning in bank accounts, that's Jesus' language. We are to find meaning only in God in those things. Are you with, not those things. Are you with me? So many of us are struggling with this. And, and that's why I got on my knees. I got on my knees today because I had to repent from the, the complacent heart that says, I deserve the $4 latte. Oh, we can talk about $4 lattes all, all day long. But there are people in my life that I know need something. And I can provide for them. So it's not about law. I'm just I'm 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 now just speaking to you like a guy that's not going to be here for a while. So, anyways, <laughs> so my challenge for you, I leave you with this. I want to invite you into the grace of giving. Here's here's four ways that we give, um, and I'll just put them up. Number one is the casual giver. Most of us are very comfortable with this. And that's when someone comes up to us on the street and we give them a couple bucks. Or um, the bucket comes by and, and we just, yeah, without really thinking, that's, you know, I'll put my transaction in and we just let it go. It's not a prepared decision. It's not a thoughtful decision. It's not, this impacts my budget and my lifestyle. 
decision. It's a, a random, casual thing that we give out. Now, let me say something. All of these we should do as followers of Jesus Christ. And I want to say this, and this is just Darren Roundson speaking, not pastor. Uh, I think we should tip the most. I think that we should carry cash if all we have are cards so that we can give to those who ask without saying, are they going to use it on alcohol? I don't care what your preference is. Jesus says, give to those who ask. We should be great casual givers. If you don't pull out cash, go to the bank and get some ones. That's just Terry speaking. Debate, debate me later. Second way we give is cause. And this is the millennial way of giving. This is the young generation. This is the... the the, this is the birth of the, the uh, Kickstarter. We love this stuff because cause is when you're passionate about something, you can control where your money goes. You want to give to uh, you know some some charity in India? We should do that. You want to give to the, the victims um, in the Philippines? We absolutely should be giving to that. When crisis comes, we give to the causes. Some of you, God has given you a grace for causes to give to. Orphans. We should all take care of the orphans. This isn't part of our tithe, guys. This is just what it means to be Christians. We should all give. But that's the thing about cause giving is it, it comes with a lot of attachment. You give when you want, maybe not consistently, and you give to something that stirs for your particular heart. So that's cause. Then there's the tithe. Tithe is not generosity, just so you know. Tithe is the baseline. For our discipleship. Tithe means ten. comes from the Old Testament. It's not a legal practice in the New Testament. We're not commanded to practice tithe. But if anyone walks through my premarital class, or if you've ever been a, a, walking with me in a community group, many of you have, you know my strong conviction that for me, the tithe is one of the most fundamental ways we push back against the idols of our age. The tithe is setting aside money and creating a discipline. Do you think it's easy to give? Regularly, For those of us that do give regularly, we can nod our heads and say, it, it represents a car payment. It represents a vacation. It represents everything else I want that I don't have. Right? But the tithe is a discipline, a practice that trains us in generosity. And the last type of giving is the generous person. It's not really an action. Generosity wells up from a trained heart that gives regularly and consistently above and beyond its time, resources, and talents, and finances. Generosity is nurtured over a period of time. It's thoughtful, it's intentional, it's produced, it's the work of God's grace on your life. And my invitation is for everyone here to enter into the grace of giving. And so I want to I invite you to see where you are. Some of you are casual givers. Great. Maybe it's time to step into the cause. Some of you are cause. Some of you are tithers. Some of you um, have allowed your tithe to just be something that you're not attached to anymore. It's very easy. Maybe God wants to invite you into more. We're all in different places here. And God is constantly working our hearts to move. Now, rather than challenge, I simply want to invite you into this story. And I'll end with these stories. Uh, we have so many great stories of generosity in our church. Um, there's a volunteer here who sets up on Sunday and never gets affirmation for it. This guy is a guy who's had financial issues, and because of that, he wasn't able to give what he wanted, and so he took a second job so that he could consistently give what God called him to give to the church. Same guy doesn't have public transportation, and gets on public transportation and uh, goes to two different Home Depots because he found out, and he was serving every morning that we set up church, that we didn't have adequate equipment to transport the stuff from this room to the kids' room, so he went and researched um, dolly systems and bought out of his own pocket a dolly while taking public transportation and brought it to the church as a donation to help the set of volunteers. That's generosity. There's the family that said, hey, $2 tacos on Halloween might be too expensive for all the families. There's going to be, a, you know, or 500 taco plates given out. Maybe um, I want to I subsidize that, and so it's only a dollar a taco. There's that type of generosity. There are numerous stories within our church of couples that have just said, live in our second home because you can't afford it. Moving people from uh, bad apartments into other apartments and furnishing their places. There are people here that have carried mortgages for people. Because they've lost jobs or they've gone through seasons of crisis. Guys, there are stories of God's grace on the garden for generosity. We're not missing it. We're not 
not missing it. I want to invite you into the story of grace, into the grace of giving. It is grace, and I want to tell you a story, one more story, and I'll finish with this. If I may. Let me tell you the story about the grace that God had given one neighbor for a family of four. A few years back, one father lost his job because of the economic downturn, and he had a difficult time and a difficult financial situation he entered into. After the unemployment checks um, stopped coming, there were foreclosure notices in his house, and at the same time, his youngest son began to get a medical condition that required treatment, and he was taking his kid to the hospital on regular visits, and the medical bills began to pile up. Foreclosure notices came in, and as he pulled out more and more credit cards to pay for the debt and to pay for the, the treatment, um, the... the, the um, the, the bills began to go to collection agencies. He was waiting for, for him, he was waiting to get a job and he never got a job. Eventually, phone calls started coming and they had to meet with the bank and they, the mom and dad went to meet with the bank that particular day and they um, were unable to negotiate and it was clear that they were going to lose their house. And it was that night that they cooked a meal with their family of four, their daughter and son, and began to sit around the table. And it was that moment that the dad realized the weight of the situation. It was that particular meal that they were eating, that the meal actually represented far more than just you know, food that, that night. It represented all that they once had. Because that meal was cheap. At one point they had plenty of food in the cupboards, and now they were seeing the back of the cupboards. They recognized that um, the kids were beginning to recognize the weight that it was on, his, uh, on the father and the mother, that uh, they weren't buying what they used to buy. They were doing the free, free meal free meal program at the school. And as, as this, this meal was going on, there was just silence in the room, and the dad began to see the weight on his kids that this meal was cheap. It wasn't what it used to be. And they were wondering and be about to discuss the fact that they were going to lose the home that the kids grew up in. And it was a weighty time where finances pressed heavily on the mom and dad as they looked at their sick kid, knowing that the bills had piled up and they had nowhere to go. And the father was looking at his kid with desperation and despair not knowing how to get out of the situation. That's when a neighbor barged in. And the neighbor was the neighbor you don't talk to because she's the one that has knows everyone and all their business. And she barges in with, with her hands full through the front door and announces her arrival and stomps through the house as they're eating this cheap meal and places their gro- bags of groceries on the table. And then she, she doesn't say anything. She's looking for a chair and walks to the side of the house grabbing a heavy chair that she could barely lift and drags the chair slowly as this family sees this intruder pull up a chair at their table as they eat this cheap meal. And she sits there and with an abrasive tone says, you need to eat better. <laughs> as the mom looks at her kids over the bags of groceries, the dad begins to say something defensively. And she pulls out a card and she says, I've been watching you. And I've seen the bankers coming by. And I know it's been hard. And it's not okay that you go through this season alone. Here's a gift card to the grocery store. I talked to the manager. You can buy whatever you want, as much as you want, for as long as you need it. It will never empty, because he will call me, and I will fill it up. (laughs) The mom began to weep hysterically, wanting everything inside of her was telling her not to accept this, but seeing these fresh groceries, knowing the implications for her family, she couldn't help but begin to cry. And before they could say thank you, before they could say anything, she said something even more abrasive, even more insulting. How much do you owe? Confused, startled, the father looks at her and begins to say numbers like he's being interrogated, interrogated by some detective. And she says, no, 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 not how much do you owe the bank, how much do you owe the whole on the entire house? What's your mortgage? And and he begins to shuffle, getting uncomfortable in his seat. And she says, what's your mortgage? He tells him the number. Well, how much do you owe for Johnny's expenses? I know he's been going to the doctor. How much are the medical bills that have piled up over the months? And he he begins to spout out numbers. The mom now, hysterically crying, begins to share some numbers. And she says, great, I know you have credit cards. How much are those? What about the car? What about the other credit card? What about the credit cards? And she just interrupts as she gets all the numbers. And she pulls out her checkbook. She says, the house, the cars, the medical 
bills and the credit cards, writes a check, slams it on the table, and says, have a, have a nice dinner, and walks out. <laughs> when we talk about grace, that's grace. It's too good to be true. It's so insulting. It's unfair. It's, it's intruding. It's not fair. It's, it's, it's not right. It's unjust. It's outrageous. It's crazy. And yes, that's grace. When we talk about giving, my question for you. When this comes by, how much grace have you received? So for the Garden Church, this no longer is something done in habit. This is a reminder of a DNA that's been established for thousands of years. This is a reminder of the grace that's been poured out on our lives and the God we choose to reflect in how we deal with our finances. And this is a reminder that when you give, you're giving what he's given already. Are you with me? Let's stand. I'd like you to close your eyes. Um, actually, close your eyes and think for a moment, maybe about that story. Some of you are here, and you're hearing a lot of talk about giving, and you're the person that this church needs to give to. And I want to say there is no pressure, but the grace that God is giving you is through us to give to you. Let us know who you are. I don't mean email us. I mean get in relationship and trust that, that the church will be the church that's always been the church. Some of you are here and you're skeptics. Oh, great, the pastor's talking about money. I want to challenge you to give somewhere else. Go give to Long Beach Christian Fellowship, Park Crest, or Grace Brethren for a couple of months. If you don't trust us, give to them. Because it's not about our church. It's about your heart. The rest of us, we're going to sing some songs. And the buckets are going to come. And may this now be a revolutionary, subversive act that challenges the gods of our age. And reminds us of the grace we've been given. Lord Jesus, thank you for pouring out your spirit on us. That thank you for pouring out your grace. That we are receivers. We are recipients, Lord, of your grace. That all we have to do is hold our hands out in gratitude. I pray, Jesus, for our hearts to be moved and stirred. That we would be radically generous. That one day a story would be told about us. About the grace that you have given us to be generous people. In the midst of severe trial and persecution in a city that desperately needs to know about Jesus. That desperately needs their heads lifting. That you would make us generous. And that generosity would spiritually impact the city. Challenge us and move us into your grace. In Christ's in your name. Amen. Thank you guys so much. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.